we're Christians, part of the church, we're supposed to know God and his love, love God, love neighbor, love our community. And that's one of those things that pretty much sounds good to everyone. Love God, love neighbor, love community. Oh, yeah, we should do that. But, but what's the first thing you need to know if you're actually going to be able to do that? You know, if, if the challenge before you was, in 2014, we're going to love God, love neighbor, love community, where do you start? And, and maybe an honest assessment, you would sit down and say, we need to revisit just how important this is and think about it more. Well, that might be helpful. We need five clear principles for how to love God, neighbor, and community better. Well, that could be helpful. You might look at your incredibly busy life and say, I've got to cut some things out. That would be helpful. But it's not the first thing. I think really the the place we would have to start if we really want to love God, love neighbor, love community well is with the love of God for his people. And that's what this text is all about. So I'm going to read verses 28 to 39. I invite you to follow along. Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave them up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, let's pray together. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, reliable, powerful. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us eyes to understand, soft hearts, and that you would drive the reality of the gospel deep into us. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. As some of you know, I'm a uh, pretty avid follower of sports, except the Winter Olympics. Just not into it. I I think it's the lack of combative sports that this doesn't get, I don't know. It's more like art, and art's great, but it's just different. Anyway, um, so uh, some of you may have seen this or read about this. A a few weeks ago, there was a high school game, I believe in California, and and a player named Austin Hatch in the second half stepped onto the court. And a few seconds later, he received a pass on the wing, calmly caught it, and drained a three-pointer. And the place went absolutely insane. The gym exploded. People rushed the court. Referees had to fight to instill peace. 
such a technical to everyone in the gym, I think. And um, it, you, you've probably seen scenes like that before. Uh, but this was a little different. Uh, one of the situations in which you'll see a scene like that is a last-second buzzer beater, a dramatic shot that wins the game. Uh, Loyola High School, for which Austin played, won that game by 28 points. They were comfortably ahead. Another situation in which you often see this kind of celebration is when the team has a sort of faithful, beloved, sort of water boy figure, someone who's not quite good enough to make the team, but he's with them all the time. And maybe the last couple games of his career, they'll stick him in the last two minutes, and he'll just jack up shot after shot after shot until he makes one. And everyone goes crazy because they love this guy. That's not the story either. Actually, Austin Hatch has a scholarship to play at the University of Michigan. They were the national runners-up last year. This guy can play ball. So why would the gym explode in the middle of the second half on a basket that's pretty much meaningless in determining the outcome of the game from a player who's a great shooter? Helps to know the story. Uh, when he was a child, he and his father survived a plane crash in which his mother and two siblings were killed. And then two years ago, a plane, single engine, piloted by his father, went down, and his father and stepmother were killed. Uh, you're like, oh my gosh, never going to the plane again, Austin Hatch. Well, Austin woke up uh, a month later in a coma, an orphan. He didn't know who he was, he didn't know where he was, and he didn't know what had happened. And he had to learn, again, how to walk and talk. And two years later, in the first game he ever plays, in two years, he takes his first shot. He drains it. It's beautiful, right? Everyone wants to be there. Now you want to be in the gym. Now you want to celebrate. It was a beautiful moment. Um, if you ever want a, a beautiful story ruined as you're reading it on the Internet, all you have to do is read the comment section, right? <laughs> right. I mean, and as you're, as you're trolling or, or rolling down the comment section, which you shouldn't do pretty much unless you're glutton for punishment, um, you know, it, it became clear to me, and I looked elsewhere, that Austin had made a statement that he believes God has a purpose for his life. That uh, because of God's mercy extended to him and his providence, that God must have a plan for him. And, and one commenter wrote in response to this, how can your cosmic sky daddy have a good purpose that includes the death of your father, mother, stepmother, and two siblings? Now, uh, the way that question was worded sort of makes me want to punch someone. <laughs> but it's not an unfair question. It's not an unfair question. In fact, if Austin Hatch never stepped on a plane or out of his house again, you might actually have some sympathy for him. How could you possibly believe God is for you, with you, has a good purpose for you, given all the suffering that you've experienced in your life. How can we, how can we know that God is for us and with us and has a purpose for us when we take stock of all our failures, all our shame, all the suffering, all the hard things in our families and our personal lives and the world around us? How can we be sure that God's for us? with us, has a good purpose for us.
And we're going to see this morning that we can be sure of God's love if we rest in his son. We can be sure of his love if we rest in his son. I often have very complicated outlines. I don't know why. It's not very smart. But probably because I think it's smart. That's the problem. Anyway, this is not one of those. This is a very simple one. We're going to talk about how God is for us and how God is with us. So Paul uh, is doing a bit of a, a rhetorical examination here. He asks all kinds of questions in our text. And in verse 31, he asks, is God for us? And then 32, who shall charge us? Verse 34, who will condemn us? Uh, But the first question he asks in verse 31 is, what shall we say to all these things? And the all these things is a litany of God's grace, his gifts, his mercy that he has poured out for his people. All the great things that God has done to make his people new. And we start with what God has already done for his people. You see this in verses 29 and 30. That the God of the universe foreknew his people and then predestined them. And then he called them and he justified them and he glorified them uh, in, in, in the wording of the, of the glorification there. Uh, makes it clear to us that God will finish what he started. It's a done deal in the decrees of God. We can rest assured he will finish what he starts. This is what God has done. But we get another angle at this, another perspective at this in verses 31 and 32. When we read, if God's for us, who can be against us? He, being God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up. For us all. God did not spare his son. That's not what he did. What he did instead was he gave his son up. Abandoned his son. Gave him over for us. What did God do? He graciously, lovingly provided his own son for us. That's what God did to bring us to himself. Octavius Winslow has written, Who delivered up Jesus to die? It wasn't Judas for money. It wasn't Pilate for fear. It wasn't the Jews for envy. It was the Father for love. That's what God has done for his people. Now, what has Christ done? Read that in verses 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Paul's saying, we have no fear of condemnation because justification is ours because of what Christ has done. Christ the Son willingly, of his own accord, Willingly came and lived a perfect life and died. And because the perfect sacrifice was accepted, the Father raised him. That's how we know the sacrifice was accepted. God the Father raised him in power. This is what Christ has done for us. Offered himself in our place that we might be made right, justified, 
with the Father. So we have what God's done and what Christ has done, but we're not done. Christ is still at work. We see this at the end of verse 34, that this same Jesus who gave himself for us is now at the right hand of God. That's not just a location. It's a statement about what Jesus is doing. He's reigning, overseeing, bringing his kingdom to bear, and he is indeed interceding for us. The God of the universe who loves you enough to willingly give his life. To come to earth and then take flesh and give himself for you. Who currently oversees all things is currently interceding for you. Think how often passively we say we'll pray for you. But then when we're in deep need and someone actually does pray for us. How grateful we are. God the Son is interceding for you. This is what Christ is doing for us now. And so when Paul says, who's going to charge us? Who's going to condemn us? The simple answer is, it's not anybody that matters. Sure, you can come up with a list of people. Your neighbor, local zoning ordinance, the police on my way home. I can think of all kinds of people that might charge me or condemn me. Um, But it's not anyone that matters. God the Father, Christ the Son, are for you. They are for you. God is for his people. And and as you struggle in the midst of your day to remember that God loves you and is for you, how, how do you remember the cross? The God sent and Christ willingly came and undertook the most gruesome punishment that he did not deserve for us. How do you know God's for you? Because he gave the costliest, most beautiful thing in the world, in the universe, for you. That's how you know that God is for you. Now, there are are two problems, perhaps, that we might be facing as we're sitting here thinking about this and hearing this. Some of you might be thinking, well, why wouldn't he be for me? After all, I'm pretty awesome. I mean, if you got to know me, it would only make sense that God was in this unto die for me because I'm pretty great. And, and I'm not saying by that that you're a pretentious jerk, prideful. It's certainly possible you might be pretentious and prideful. Actually, most of us are. Um, but you might have a sense that uh, we as people, and you certainly as one of them, are sort of the center of the universe. And so why wouldn't God do everything that needs to be done to save me or save us. And uh, perhaps you've forgotten or you just don't know uh, the nature, naturally speaking, of our relationship with God. We are rebels. We are traitors. We've committed treason. We want God to serve us. We don't want to serve him. We want to take his place. There is absolutely no reason for God to do what he's done except for love and mercy. So perhaps that's where you are, and you just need to look around a little bit more carefully at the nature of humanity and in your own heart and realize there's no reason for God to be for me that I can find in me. It's outside of me. It's his love and mercy and grace. And and perhaps there's some of you sitting here, and, and you're not thinking this at all. Instead, you're looking at yourself, and you're asking the question, not why wouldn't he, but how how could he? 
How could he possibly be for me? I mean, if he knew what I was really like, well, he does. He knows exactly what you're like. If he knew what I really did, well, he does. If he knew what I really think, what I really love, well, he does. And you will never be able to rest in his love if you think it's up to you. You never will. Uh, We sang the song, It's Well With My Soul, just a minute ago. And every time I think of that song or hear that song, I think of this fellow at my old church back in St. Louis. We had Sunday evening worship services, and uh, it was sort of an open contest, like for him saying. Like, we didn't have hymns. You had to, we sort of took it. Who wants to sing something? And there was like seven arms going up, and everyone's jostling to get their favorite hymn song. But whatever, this guy, David Ludwig, raised his hand. Everyone knew what he was going to say. It is well with my soul. And then we just sort of went through the routine of doing it every time, because you're allowed to pick two verses. And people used to like, oh, one in five. And, and David said, it is well with my soul. Which verse? Three. Okay. The other verse. Three again. Yeah. And if you go back and look at that verse, you understand why. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And David's saying, I can't get enough of that. I can't. I could, I could scarcely believe it. It's so good. I need to hear it again. And we need to hear it again. The God is for us. And if you forget, you see it in the cross. And you can't add a thing to that. There's nothing you can add to that. And we see in our text that God's not just for us, but he's with us. Paul starts again with the rhetorical examination in verses 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it raises the question, is God not just for us, but is he with us? Is he here? Can he be separated? Can we be separated from him? And what he's going to conclude when he's done here is not the worst things we can imagine, nor the worst things that can actually happen to us can separate us from his love. He he starts with not the worst things that can actually happen. And this is a terrible list, 35, 36, 37. He asked the question, who can separate us? But this is a a litany of the terrible what's. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. It's a a terrible list of things that you do not want to befall you, your family, your community, your nation. Intentional persecution and evil, the threat of death. It's something we're not used to really encountering. I remember a number of, oh my gosh, 15, 17 years. I I met uh, the right Reverend Nathaniel Garang. I don't know if you know him, I suppose. I'm not even sure the man is still alive. But at the time, he was the uh, right Reverend Bishop of the Anglican Church in Sudan. This was in the middle of the 90s. Sudan's a mess now. It was much, much worse then in some ways. And I had the privilege of spending an afternoon with this guy, picking him up, carrying him around town, bringing him back to this children's home where I was working. And I knew nothing about him or the sedan or anything. And so I wasted all kinds of opportunities. It was just my immaturity. We did, however, walk into a Ryan Steakhouse in a really small town in the middle of nowhere. And it was awesome because Nathaniel Garang is 6'7", and beautifully dark, dressed in this blood-red robe. 
It was amazing. Everyone was scared to death. It was like Jesus had returned. <laughs> uh, but that night, as Nathaniel Garang spoke um, to a bunch of people that weren't really interested in listening to him, uh, he, he walked with a staff and a slight limp, and he held up the staff and said, you know what these glittery things are? No one knew. He's like, this is shrapnel. Shrapnel from what? He's like, bombs. Bombs that are dropped on us as we pray and gather for worship. Our people are attacked by planes. I was like, excuse me? It's just unfathomable for us. That wasn't unfathomable for him or for Paul. This is the experience of people throughout the world and throughout history. And Paul is saying, not the worst thing that can actually happen to you can separate you from Jesus, from God's love. In fact, he goes on and says, uh, actually, we're conquerors. In all these things, we prevail. We overcome through Jesus. And then in 38 and 39, not even the worst things you can imagine. He says in verse 38, I'm sure. I am, I am sure that neither death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth. It's like he started to make a list and he ran out of tangible things. So he just, like, okay, everything, everywhere, etc. Just You name it, you can imagine it, none of those things that you might be afraid of can actually separate you from his love. Nothing in heaven, earth, anywhere, anytime. And not only can it not separate us, but if we read the whole text and go back to verse 28, not only did it not separate us, but God in his infinite power and wisdom and goodness has promised these things that we think will kill us and separate us are actually used for his purposes to make us like Jesus. You conquer. You prevail. You're on the side of the victorious king who will win. And he'll make you like him through all these things. Uh, we, have, we have a slew of children. Actually, it's only three, but it feels like more. And... Uh, they're, it's because they're awesome and they're just so energetic. And our three-year-old girl who's going on four is uh, beautiful and energetic and in some ways fearless of like real things. Like she went sledding the first time the other day, face first down the hill, backwards. Like she's not scared of any of those kind of things. She's terribly afraid of the dark, which is to say she's afraid of things she can imagine. Like when you're, when you're afraid of the dark, when you're a small child, or maybe even now, uh, you're not afraid of like real things. You're not afraid of the blinds or the dresser. You're afraid of what you imagine, right? And Abiel, who's three, will come into our room and she'll say, because she doesn't yet have a proper understanding of English, I'm scary. <laughs> no, you're not scary. You're very cute. <laughs> you're scared. You're scared. And, um, you know, Reasoning doesn't work with a three-year-old. We're right here. We're for you. We love you. We're with you. But, but she, she can't feel us with her unless we're actually with her. You know, a lot of the things that Paul lists here are things we've never experienced and may never experience by God's grace. Uh, but we have our own lists of things we fear, don't we? Some of you are afraid you're going to grow up and grow old, lonely, 
Some of you are afraid of the opinions of others. You most want respect. You're afraid people will discover you're a fraud. Some of you are afraid that your secret shames will somehow be revealed. Some of you are afraid you'll be abandoned, rejected. Some of you are afraid of physical suffering. We've all got things, imaginary or real, that we're afraid of. And, and somehow, we've been wired. Sin has done this. Sin has rewired us. Where we've got this crazy math in our head. That if bad things befall us, it must be because I've done something wrong. Or I am wrong. Or I am unlovable and God is bringing this to bear in my life. He's punishing me. He hates me. And I want to say this as strongly as I can. If you believe in Jesus... If you're in him by faith and you think the way I just said, that's nonsense. It's crazy talk. Worse than that, it's blasphemy. If you're in Jesus by faith and bad things befall you, it's not because he hates you. It's not. The reality is the world is filled with suffering and death. And it comes for us all. It does. But you have to get that crazy calculus out of your head. If I just perform well, if I just do everything right, I will escape all the suffering. If I just manage it just right, God will love me. That is not the gospel. God is for you and with you because the Son loves you and you're resting in him. If it's, I do want to speak to perhaps another group of people that might be in the room. If you're here this morning and, and you're not sure what Christianity is, or if you're a Christian, uh, I want you to hear really clearly what I just said. Because there will be some people that may tell you otherwise. That if you become a Christian, life will be great. And you'll just skate through, trouble-free through life. And there is certainly a matter in which wisdom and loving your neighbor and being part of a community may rescue you from some things in this world. But you do not get out of you do not get a free get out of suffering pass when you become a Christian. Instead what you're granted is a promise that the God of the universe is at work in your life, that he loves you, that he's for you, that he's with you, that he's using all your trials to make you beautiful like Jesus. And that you can then be free, free from living in fear. Free from living in fear. Uh, we really do live in fear. Fear of exposure, fear of suffering. And, and if we really understand that the God of the universe in Jesus has drawn near and given himself for us, that he is for us and with us, then, then what can you not do for him? What can you not do for others? What are you not doing? What are you not trying now for God and for the good of others because you're afraid? And there's something. I don't want to serve my neighbor because she's a mean old woman. She's going to yell at me. That's not hypothetical. That's true. I don't want to serve my neighbor because she's a mean old woman. She's going to yell at me. You want to meet her? (laughs) And yet, the God of the universe is with me and for me. Why am I afraid? And I don't know what it is for you or who it is for you, 
But if he's with you and for you, what do you have to lose? You can forget yourself. Stop being preoccupied and hiding and, and do great things for him and for others. We can be sure of his love because of what he's done for us, because of his promises to be with us. Uh, we're one of those families that uh, we're still like putting things away for Christmas. We started weeks ago. We're just really busy and messy and don't have great attention to detail. And um, so we keep finding stuff. But in the height of our Christmas glory, we had Christmas cards everywhere. And it's not because I'm terribly popular. Um, it's because I've lived in lots of places. And my wife is terribly popular. And so we had, I don't know, dozens, dozens, and dozens of Christmas cards. And um, my son, who's going to be six soon, um, one day came down, and we, we put them around our dining room. And he said, which is your favorite Christmas card? And uh, so I walked around and pointed at some pretty, pretty cool ones. Some were very beautiful. Some were very meaningful. And, and my son, when he gets excited, he starts jumping up and down in his place, uh, which is really cool because I don't have any of that in me. Um, so he's really excited. And, and eventually I go and I pick out one, and I pick this one. Yeah, isn't it great? It's my son's Christmas card that he made at school. And I said, this is my favorite. Now, if you look at the card, there's not much to say for it. Like, this is a guy, and this is some kind of animal, but I don't exactly know what kind of animal that is. And then on the inside, he wrote Merry Christmas, sort of. And then there's some drawings at the bottom. I have no idea what they are. One might be a rocket, and the other one looks like potato chips. Like, I, I really got no idea what those things are. And yet, it really is my favorite card. It's not as beautiful, not as articulate as some others, but it's my favorite because it's his. I can't even read the thing. And that's what you need to know, that if you're in Jesus, resting in him by faith, you're his favorite. And it's not because of anything about you, anything you've done or earned, it's not. And that's actually a wonderful thing that really lets you rest and know that he's for you and he's with you and delights in you. And that will free you up to serve others and love others well. Let's pray together. Good Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your love for your people, in your 